Our concluding speaker this morning uh, will be Garrett O. He'll talk on stubbornness. I remember these various people when I was calling for speakers that uh, uh, he accepted so uh, graciously and had his topic immediately. And uh, God, that made me feel good because a year ago when I was thinking about this program and how much I hated this assignment and thought maybe if I drank again, they'd take this assignment away from me. And uh, I wouldn't go to that, but uh, it sure brought up a lot of stuff. And as uh, um, Gordy said, a lot of pain gives us growth. And uh, I'd say, God, you want me to do this? I don't want to do it. And uh, so I'm grateful for this assignment, and I'm thankful to be here. Gordy? No, not Gordy. See, I don't even know my own name now. Garrett. And my name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, John. Um, stubbornness. I, I asked John yesterday, uh, showing you to the extent to which I could remember things, as to where that title had come from. And I thought somebody had assigned it to me because uh, I really wasn't able to identify with very much of it. And in preparing to come down here, I thought I might have to go to the library and look up the Index Medicus under stubbornness and see if there'd been any studies. Uh, I have a scientific meeting and so on, and then I realized that really uh, I was something of an expert on the topic. Uh, I was, I'm very nervous about this whole thing, because I, I came down here, this is a terrible thing for the humility. Uh, I, I came down here expecting a, an AA convention, it's my first IDAA meeting, and uh, I came down here expecting an AA convention type with multiple meetings going and little rooms here and there and maybe talking with, uh, you know, 10 or 12 stragglers and, uh, and, and this, I was horrified yesterday, uh, to, to see the enormity of this room and the people in it. Um, and, and it's, it's terrible, but one of my frightful problems is indeed ego and starting at the top. All my drinking years, I, I never started at the bottom. I ended up at the bottom, but I used to start at the top. And here I am with my first IDAA meeting starting as a speaker. Uh, it's debatable, of course, as to whether or not that's at the top or the bottom. Uh, <laughs> strikes me. It strikes me that minute. I was looking at the program last night, and uh, there are 37 IDAA meetings that have been held so far, and in 30 cities. And I'd never been at an IDAA meeting, but I got drunk in 16 of those cities. Uh, which isn't bad for an immigrant boy, you know. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I was uh, brought up in a... Uh, alcoholism is a psychosocial, biogenetic, spiritual disease, and I qualify in every compartment. I was uh, come from an alcoholic family in an alcoholic street, in an alcoholic neighborhood, in an alcoholic city, in an alcoholic country, Ireland. And there was... I, I grew up to be an alcoholic. There was no other... That was the primary career professional track in my family. You knew at an early stage that uh, you were going to be something, but before you were anything else, you were going to be an alcoholic, because everybody else was. I, I thought I was going to be an alcoholic priest, or an alcoholic doctor, or an alcoholic whatever. And that was deep in my consciousness uh, from the very beginning. Um, I was uh, uh, brought up in a medical family, and I the things happened to me very early before I started to drink. As a matter of fact, I had my first drink in the year in the first meet, the, the year the first meeting of IDAA was held. I was just looking at that last night. Um, 1949, I had my first drink. I was 12 years of age. But prior to that, a lot of things happened which seemed to me to determine a lot of the things that I did in my later drinking career and were the reasons as to why I had to drink. And it's very interesting. I don't think I'd be here today if I hadn't spent 25 years drinking. 
Well, I didn't mean that the way you got it. <laughs> I mean, be I mean, be here at all. I mean, I'd be in the cemetery, really, quite seriously. I'd be having aftercare. The cemetery is the only place for aftercare, incidentally, if you really believe that alcoholism is a disease. The embalmers are the pure aftercare counselors of, of all. <laughs> so, and I <clears throat> was taught these things very early. I was taught to be a man. That was a primary instruction from the very early stage, when I was four or five. Taught to be a man. I was taught not to express my feelings. Um, I was taught that, that sex is a mortal sin and that if you have anything to do with it before you're married, you'll certainly go to hell. Uh, I was taught that uh, don't trust... Oh, I said you can drink. I was taught very on that drinking is fine provided you don't drink gin because that's a whore's drink. Uh, so my father said that. He was an alcoholic and he only drank whiskey. Uh, I was also taught that uh, don't trust... What was it? Uh, businessmen... Businessmen, policemen, and Jews. They were the three groups I wasn't to trust. And now I've ended up as a businessman entrepreneur, monitoring people's urines as a clinical policeman, and in a profession uh, which the preponderance of people are Jewish in psychiatry. So of all of these difficulties in my uh, life, which uh, continue to create conflicts, and, and that's why I need a program. But those things are very important. And, and in, in being taught to be a man, one of the first opportunities I had to be a man was when I was five, and I was brought along, and I had a boil on my knee, and the surgeon came in and lanced it. They used to do home visits then in Ireland, and, and he came along, and he lanced it, and I was didn't cry. It was a streptococcal infection. I didn't cry, and they said, what a great little man he is. And as a reward, an incredible reward uh, for being a man, I was put into bed with my mother, age five, and I had my first panic attack. Because my mother herself was alcoholic, and she was a small little sparrow of a woman, and she reached out to me to hold me and to hug me, uh, because she was so happy that I was a man and I hadn't cried, and she wanted to comfort me. And I remember trying to scramble my way out through a wall to get away from this. It made me so anxious. And so I had my first crisis of intimacy with a woman when I was five. And I remember it very clearly. And that has continued in my life and into recovery, and it is one of the things that I, I deal with and, and try to deal with um, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, I was brought up in a medical family. My father, though, it was a strange medical family because my father was a pathologist. And I, you get the idea that, that medicine is about saving lives, and he would not deal with anyone unless they were dead. People used to come to the door. He had a plate, Matthew O'Connor, MD, on the door, and people occasionally used to knock in the neighborhood for assistance. And he would answer the door and tell them he couldn't help them now until they'd come back when they were dead, literally, and shut the door in their face. <laughs> and when we were driving along in the, during the war, and, and we had a car, and occasionally there'd be somebody lying in an accident or something like that, and after the war... And I was quite mystified because my father would get out and he'd go over to somebody lying inert or prone on the street and, uh, if, and he'd bend over them and inspect them and then examine them or whatever. And if they were still living, he'd get back in the car and drive on. <laughs> and if they were dead, of course, he was professor of pathology at the university and in charge of the uh, pathology museum. And if they were dead, he'd start rummaging uh, to see if there was anything worthwhile taking. And he, he used to have to be pulled off corpses in the street, quite literally, by the St. John's Ambulance and the police. He was well known for purloining organs as the city coroner, uh, doing post-mortems in distant places. I grew up with this. I grew up with livers and brains and hearts in the car. Did my first autopsy with him when I was eight. He handed me guts down lungs and hearts, and I put them in a bucket and hosed them down. Um, and so it was a strange 
we were a very respected and respectable Dublin family in the professional classes. He was a very respected physician. He was a functional alcoholic, drank a bottle of whiskey every day for 35 years, he later told me. And my mother <coughs> was often a falling down alcoholic, but we were very respected. And on the outside, this was a family that looked good, always, respectable and respected. And on the inside, it was barbaric, savage, tyrannical, violent, and uh, deteriorated in all its relationships. And yet at the same, and that programmed my life, always to look good at the expense of feeling good. Uh, an unreality was programmed into my existence at a very early age. And my father would roar like a bull elephant in the family, and yet he would be charming and elegant on the outside, and always, often was charming and elegant with us too. Uh, my mother had been a brilliant linguist and a musician before I knew her. As I knew her, she was uh, a deteriorated alcoholic. Uh, so I grew up with these double things, that you look good on the outside, and you felt terrible on the inside, and you were brilliant on the outside, and you were dumb and ignorant and stupid on the inside, and so on. And the only way that I could learn to reconcile these differences in me was to drink. I found that at the age of 12, serving Mass in a boys' school where I was, desperately homesick, um, crying my way to sleep every night, uh, that if I had a cruet of wine uh, with the priest... Uh, that it made the day better for me. And I drank, not to get away from anything, I drank because I desperately wanted to belong. In the very early days of my family, I always felt rented. I felt as if <clears throat> they had needed somebody my age, and they went out and bought somebody, and it was me. I really didn't feel I belonged in that family, even though I was there, and there were lots of love and affection in our family to the extent that it existed. But I always wanted to be someplace else. I always wanted to be next door in the German family. For example, where they sang hymns at Christmas and had a real Christmas tree and gave each other gifts which they thought about. Whereas in our family, we gave each other money and had a plastic Christmas tree which was pulled out of a drawer on Christmas morning. Uh, I wanted something else. I wanted things that other people had. <clears throat> and as a result, I was never happy or content where I was at the moment with myself. Drinking began at the age of 12, as I say. I began to share secret drinks with my mother, who always had sherry in her, in her knitting bag. I blacked out very early on, um, <clears throat> and I, as I say, I drank to belong. I wanted to be with you, drinking, I could be with you. If I wasn't drinking, I would be reclusive, isolated, frightened, uh, depressed, and, uh, and, and miserable. I also wanted your approval, and I would go to any lengths to get it. Uh, my father's approval, my, the teacher's approval at school, anything, I would, I would cheat at exams in order to get a high mark, uh, so that I would be uh, approved of. I could not bear the idea of my performance being rejected or in some way uh, put down by my father or anybody else in authority. And anybody else in authority to this day includes head waiters, taxi drivers, barmen, priests, um, anybody with a title, uh, anything of that sort, cocktail waitresses, waitresses in cocos, um, secretaries of AA meetings, newcomers sometime, and so on. So, surrounded by these people in, that I put in authority and in whom, before whom I quake. But I can't obviously let anybody ever see that, because that wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't be proper, uh, given my background and, and the way I was brought up. Uh, sex was a terribly difficult thing in Ireland as a, as a teenager. Ireland is still the only country, I think, in the whole world where there is no evidence, whatever, of the fact that an act of sexual intercourse ever took place. Uh, every, every live birth is still regarded as a product of the Immaculate Conception. And so growing up in Ireland uh, was, was very difficult because you weren't supposed to have any sexual thoughts. They were mortal sins, and if you had a sexual thought, then you were hit by a bus 
uh, you went straight to hell. So you lived under a sort of death sentence all the time. And I was very conscious of this, feeling as if I was on death row. And uh, so it was very difficult. I was I got out of high school when I was quite young, and I went to medical school. I wanted actually to be an actor, but I didn't have the guts or courage to insist upon that. My father had the odd idea that if I, I couldn't be an actor for two reasons, he said. First, if I went on the stage, I would become homosexual. And he couldn't, he couldn't abide the idea of having a homosexual person in his family. Secondly, it would be too expensive, because he would have to pay for my education. As he happened to be dean of the medical school, I could go and become a doctor free, and, and presumably protect my heterosexuality. Well, I, it was terrible, because I got out of high school because of, of a genetic endowment of being reasonably quick, and also, uh, a learned behavior of cheating on exams. I got out of uh, high school fairly, a uh, combination of the two got me out at the age of 16 and a half and straight into medical school. And everybody was your age. I mean, there were fellows with gray hair and all, and, and I was just 16 and a half, 17. I wasn't even let into the anatomy room my first year. There's a law in Ireland meaning you can't fool around with a corpse until you're 17 and a half. It's to prevent necrophilia, I think. And they wouldn't let me in. Everybody else got into the anatomy room and I couldn't get in. I was too young. And I thought I was in medical school only because my father was the dean. I had no right or entitlement to be there. And I really, the only way I could find to belong in that medical school and to feel entitled was to drink. Because if I drank, and it does do this, it added on 10 years to me instantly. I could be 24, 25. I mean, there were fellows there who had flown... In, in World War II, in the RAF, and they were there on grants. There were people from India and Africa and America. And, and here I was, uh, feeling completely inadequate, young, disenfranchised, unentitled. I had no pubic hair. Uh, just about six months before I went to medical school, I'd been singing alto in the school choir. And, and I'd only given up my short trousers with something of a struggle when they said that it was unbecoming for a senior in high school to be still in short trousers. Still at medical school, I had, they used to call it at home, Garrett's family, consisting of 16 stuffed animals, which I kept in my bed. And they had to be there in a particular order. I would have a psychotic break if, if the, the maid put them, put the elephant ahead of the zebra, or something like that, and the teddy bear and the alligator, and they were all, they had to be lined up in the bed. Uh, for me. Now that, I was at medical school when that was happening. And that was my family. I was still wetting my pants. I wet my pants really before I started drinking at all. <laughs> I had a sort of slow leak that went on and was very embarrassing. <laughs> it was infantile prostatitis, I think, you know. Because <laughs> It went on for, for, for years and was terribly embarrassing and it also was very painful because I had these all uh, abrasive um, uh, chafing all around my crotch. And so <laughs> this, made, this made any kind of attempted sexuality very difficult because you were in a, under a death sentence constantly. And uh, for example, um, and feeling so young and feeling so unentitled and, and not being a man, certainly not filling out my instructions, to be a man, I couldn't be only by drinking, but any attempts at sex, my, my premature ejaculations actually preceded meeting the, the woman, usually the girl, <laughs> by about three days. Uh, uh, probably a Guinness Book of Records item in that one, I mean, the, uh, by the time I ever met a girl, I was exhausted. And, <laughs> and, and just waiting for death quietly like a sheep. Terrible. I mean, imagine the strain and stress of all that. 
So anyway, <coughs> drinking, drinking uh, was, of course, the answer to all of this. And I, I, I did everything, you see. I was good at athletics, and I was good at the drama society, and I was good debating, and I was a good drinker, and people thought. But I really wasn't a good drinker in the beginning at all, because in order to be a good drinker, I had to learn how to be a good vomiter. The two are connected. And so <coughs> it was very important for me to have a reputation as a man. And so one of the ways to have a reputation as a man was to drink a lot. And I couldn't drink a lot, but I found out a way to drink a lot was by drinking five or six pints of beer and then going out and vomiting them up and then coming back in and drinking another five or six pints. And you could do this if you drank them fast enough without getting very drunk. And you got this incredible reputation about being a hard man, a great drinker. And um, so I was able to do that and everybody thought I was a hard drinker, but I really wasn't. It was more cheating and more defrauding the public uh, <clears throat> that I was doing. And I always regarded myself in the very beginning as having a public. Uh, that I had to in some way to perform for. Uh, I, I got, uh, drank my way through medical school in Ireland. That's a very easy thing to do because it, you're expected to drink and to get into trouble. You're expected to be a character, a medical student and so on. And the police will not arrest you. They bring you home, um, deliver you home. And so there's a great deal of enabling. And I was, by the time I graduated my medical school, I had, I was a full-blown alcoholic. Blackouts, um, car crashes, um, everything included uh, by that time. Uh, physical damage from fighting and from car crashes and so on. And my problem was there, and I, the IDAA meeting brings it up particularly, I graduated from medical school without ever having any interest in being a doctor. Um, I went to be a medical school. My father told me to go to medical school, and it provided a great opportunity to drink and to travel and do all of those things and have fun. I happened to get somebody pregnant in, a, in a, a, an accidental sort of way, given my premature ejaculations and impotence, on, a, on a, uh, an unusual event occurred, and some, my girlfriend got pregnant, and we had to get married in Ireland. And so we were finally exported to this country in 1960 uh, by my father, who was covered in shame uh, because of this uh, event, and I had a small child. And I didn't want to really be a doctor, but I had some sort of basic sense of responsibility. I had a wife and a child and came here uh, to, to be uh, trained. As somebody, Lynn, said this morning, he was supposed to go home and look after his father's business. I was supposed to come here and get trained and go back to Dublin, step into my father's footsteps as a pathologist and somehow take over his uh, uh, pathology practice. Not only did I not want to be a pathologist, I didn't want to be a doctor or anything, and naturally the only profession I could end up in then was psychiatry. Um, <laughs> to which I was, I think, admitted for treatment in 1961, and they, they, they uh, uh, and I had, was here. Um, one of one of the things, just to indicate the extent of my alcoholism in in that period of time, in 1961, I had my second child, and I had started the Baltimore Rugby Club. I was at Johns Hopkins and, and, uh, at the time, over at the a, a local hospital being an intern at the time. I had started a rugby club as a vehicle for my drinking, quite literally. I drank up and down the East Coast and, and condoned drinking uh, for quite a number of years. Had this, my second child was due. There was a rugby match that afternoon on the Saturday, and I was the captain of the rugby team. We had a visiting team from Montreal, I think. And it was more important for me. I made arrangements for my wife to go into the hospital. And I called the OB nurses and I told them where I was and to let me know when they thought it would be time for me to be there. Because I had this important work to do. And what I had to do was host a party uh, for the Montreal rugby team, which I did. And I got drunk, of course. And I was in the back room of the party. And the nurses called from the hospital, which was only about a half a mile away and told me that I better get there uh, for to be with my wife, and she was about to deliver. 
It takes a long time to get out of the back of a party to the front door and get out the street when you're drunk and get down. And I was late for the birth of my second child, simply because alcohol was more important to me than something like the birth of a child, in which I had no real mature involvement. It was like the birth at that time of somebody else's child. Uh, my whole character structure at that time was distorted and depraved. I had really no interest in anything except myself, and no interest in anything except my own opportunities, and no interest in anything except my opportunities to drink. Any uh, appearance of generosity or intimacy that I had was actually a manipulation uh, designed to get you on my side, designed to get you to do what I wanted you to do, so that ultimately I could enjoy myself and drink. I don't think I had any morals of any kind. I don't think I had any developed conscience, except in a peculiar pathological form that used to punish me terribly after my escapades. That was the the vestige of a conscience that was left, thank God, there was enough in recovery, uh, enough of a seed of a conscience left uh, for me to grow it in recovery through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but I had the usual remorses and regrets about events like that, and there were many of them. Uh, like Lynn, my career took off. It was I could talk my way uh, through, and I drank, and I was charming and elegant, and I was Irish. Uh, being of all of those things, uh, I was expected to drink. Uh, there were many times during my drinking career that I tried to stop drinking, and I wasn't permitted to. Uh, people were upset. Where are you? Why are you not drinking? Uh, they, I'd, I'd be in the university club in Baltimore, dry and sober, uh, for ten minutes, people would start passing down drinks. There'd be six whiskeys lined up. For a drinking Irishman to stop drinking seems to be a universal threat of some kind. And uh, it was, certainly was for me, and uh, so I acquiesced and, and just went on. Uh, at that time, uh, drinking was daily. It was daily. It just depended how much. Uh, I used to, um, and incidentally, my family life was deteriorating, had deteriorated. I couldn't control things. One of the things that given my own family background of uh, a distant uh, alcoholic family trying its best to be affectionate but never making it, was that I wanted all my life, I yearned for a family. I yearned for the warmth and affection of a wife and children and, and to be fathered and mothered and to be a father and to be a parent. And I wanted that desperately more than almost anything else. And I had it right there for me, but I could never make it happen. Uh, for example, I loved Christmases because it was full of... I used to try and recreate these German Christmases, my geographic Christmases next door, uh, to, to sort of make amends for the Christmases, the flat, dry, commercial Christmases that I had. And I used to try and make amends for that and have good Christmases in my own family, and I don't think I ever made it, because I would get furious maybe at 9.30 with trying to put a bike together and go bananas and tear the Christmas tree to pieces and uh, shriek at my children. Because I would be drunk or in withdrawal by that time, having had, um, of course, having been drunk on Christmas Eve. I remember once, uh, the guy next door, we're in Baltimore, he had built a bar, and he opened his bar on Christmas Day, 11 o'clock on Christmas Day, and I was there for the opening it. He built it in his back garden. And at 3 o'clock, the children kept on being sent over by my wife, because dinner was ready, and they'd come over and pluck at me, you know. I, yeah, I'll be there. Don't tell I'll be there in a minute. And, of course, it was now 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock, and I'd started to say goodbye at noon. You know, I was only 10 yards away from my own house. <laughs> and I kept drinking, kept drinking. I got in. The, 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 the dinner was all laid. The candles were going. The children were there. My wife in this little house that we had. And I sat down, and there was something wrong. Uh, something wrong. The cranberry sauce was cold, I think. I mean, a major event like that. And the turkey was there, and halfway I was carving it, and I, I cut 
the, the fork slipped or something like that, the knife went, it just missed me, and then I blew up. Because my, my wife had been silent, she'd been enra- enraged. When I said, what's wrong? She said, nothing's wrong, we're all here for dinner, dear. You know, and there was the, the affection had drained out. The great Christmas that I had hoped to make was dribbling away in front of my very eyes, and I became enraged, and I got the table, and I just uprooted the whole table right down on my wife's lap, the cranberry sauce, the turkey, everything. The children ran for cover. That was a typical Christmas in, 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 in my life. Dismantled by an enraged, drunken, confused man who yearned for something that was right there in front of my nose and that I couldn't have. Another missed opportunity, which was really, in a way, the, 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 uh, a way of describing my drinking years. Endless numbers of missed opportunities. Because for me, alcohol was more important, drinking was more important than being there. I was never where I was I was never there when I was supposed to be there. If I was talking to you, I would be someplace else. I'd be looking over your shoulder to see who more important I could talk to, uh, to see who could do me more good than you. But I wanted to make sure that I was talking to you because maybe you had something that I could take. And that was the basic, I think, character situation there was a sense of lifelong deprivation. I've never been deprived of my life. Had a very full life uh, with a lot of opportunities, a lot of things given to me, a lot of privilege uh, where I came, was brought up, uh, intelligence, all of those things. I've had a lot of things in my life. My problem was with drinking that with the dominance of alcohol, I was simply unable to use all those opportunities. They were all there. And that was part of my sense of loss and deprivation and despair uh, that grew up with drinking. As I said, I didn't know I knew I was an alcoholic. My problem was I didn't know there was anything you could do about that. Uh, I made many geographics, one from Ireland to Baltimore, another one in 1972 from Baltimore, out of one marriage into another, with literally about a minute and a half gap between them. And knowing my problem with intimacy with women, I always had to have a woman with me. And I went from my, my nurse to my mother to my nurse to, to a wife at the age of 19, Ten years of that marriage and then to another wife. So there was never a time when I have not been attached to a woman in my life. Um, and that has created all of the confusion and conflict and ambivalences that I've, I've had to try and sort out and which for many years I simply sorted out with drinking. Um, in any event, came to Los Angeles trying to make a new life. And geographics work. They really do work. Lynn was talking that, you know, one worked for a couple of weeks. Well, my geographic to Los Angeles worked for about six years, six months. Uh, but then the alcohol, you don't know anyone. They don't know your past. They don't know your patterns. Uh, you're a golden-haired boy. Great expectations are there from you and from everybody else. People make things available to you. They make allowances because you're new in the area and so on. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity for an alcoholic. And gradually, of course, the alcoholism seeps up. Uh, so that finally in, in, in Los Angeles, I was probably the only person in Los Angeles uh, that looked for traffic jams. I'd get a six-pack and head for the traffic jam. <laughs> You're wonderful, on the freeway. They'd say, why don't you drive home by the back way? I don't know the freeways. I like the freeways. I'm in Los Angeles. I should use the freeways. Well, I've had six of those little cans of cocktails. You know, they came out then in about 1972-73, uh, and you could go them and spend 45 minutes in blissful uh, no, the police couldn't get you. Nobody could. No phones. No nothing. You're drinking away, and and then you'd get home, and uh, wonderful. And you could feel virtuous and righteous about the whole thing. There were many episodes of psychiatry. 
uh, one with an alcoholic psychiatrist, and we nodded at each other after lunch. Our sessions were three o'clock in the afternoon, preceded by martinis and the rest of it, separately. Um, never figured out what that was all about. It went on for five years. That was paid for by the department. They sent me for psychotherapy because they were concerned about my attitudes and my behavior. Uh, alcoholism or alcohol was never mentioned in four and a half years of that particular psychotherapy. And I think I'd probably be in that psychotherapy still in Baltimore had not the psychiatrist himself been tragically killed in a plane crash. Then came out, out to Los Angeles, had another psychiatric episode with a very prominent analyst in Los Angeles. And again, alcoholism was not dealt with as a primary disorder in that particular analysis. It was mentioned, but the idea there was that if the insight uh, was developed, uh, that the symptom, uh, that alcoholism, which was a symptom of the underlying disorder, would abate. Well, I didn't let that happen because I regarded the analysis as being a very stressful event. And I used to go straight from the uh, session into the hamburger hamlet on Bedford Drive and load up uh, with alcohol immediately afterwards. In fact, I became such a regular in that bar that they let me make my own drinks. Now, that's my definition of being a regular. <laughs> they used to be setting up for the evening meals, and they said, well, go ahead. I mean, you're here every day. You might as well. And uh, so, again, I'd be getting home at 5 or 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening, uh, often 10 o'clock, because I'd stay there, of course, uh, quite drunk. And yet I could say to my wife, but God damn it! I'm doing, he's the best shrink in town. And just one of these days, one of these days, you know, we're going to hit this insight and I'm going to find out why I drink. It's only, we've got to have patience here now. I mean, analysis is a tough business. You don't know what analysis is like. I mean, the stress and the strain and bearing your soul every day and the money. I mean, for Christ's sake, lay off. That was my attitude. And she, she bought it. She thought that my suffering was so deep, uh, my, my, my sense of genius and brilliance was so conflicting uh, that I needed this treatment to, to carry me through. Then there was violence. I was a violent drunk. I could be elegant and charming and nice, but then... <laughs> it would happen like that. Somebody would do something small, like leave the room. <laughs> Abandonment. Any idea of abandonment, somebody leaving the room, somebody going out to shop, something like that would immediately induce an anxiety attack bordering on panic in me. And if there was another ingredient in that, like a criticism of me, my fist went. And again, with this extraordinary ability, extraordinary ability to manipulate, I had my wife convinced that it was her fault. Because I told her I'd been a boxer in my youth and that I'd been trained. Actually, I'd been a very unsuccessful amateur boxer with a few fights in which I had to be forced into the ring because I was so frightened. <laughs> but I converted this into some kind of thing like a commando or a green beret training. And that the center part of my brain, and I gave her a little anatomy lesson about the midbrain and so on, and these primitive centers had been trained to respond to certain stimuli. And that it was powerless. I had no control over this. So when certain events happened, it was simply something my fist came up and hit. And that that was to protect me as a matter of fact, from danger under these circumstances of fighting and training. And I had a whole elaboration of this, a neurological lecture. And she, she was sitting there in awe, bleeding, you know. And she's an actress, and she was bleeding, you know, and semi-believing this nonsense. And, and I believed it, certainly. And when she would go down, we almost at one point had to have a plastic surgeon on a retainer. She, she, she would go down to UCLA to get stitched up, and I would be at home, uh, this is a, beating my head against the wall like a retarded child. I've done it again, I've done it again. Because the, the last thing I wanted to do, I wanted my wife, I wanted her close, I wanted my children. I wanted them so much. 
All my life I'd wanted them, and I would hit them. My children. Bang! Because they showed me up to myself. They held a mirror to me somehow by being there. And that mirror, the image I saw, was not good. And so it was those moments when I would be held up to myself that I had to strike out violently, viciously, abusively with my tongue to hurt people, to keep them away and to keep at bay the conception that I had of myself as a person who was failing, a person who was deteriorating, a person who was no good, a person who had no future. And yet I went on, as alcoholics do. And finally, there was more of the same. It's enough of the drunkalog, really. It just got worse and worse, and more savage and more brutal. And yet, at the same time, I was being respected in the community, and giving talks and lectures and doing treatment and so on. And uh, But finally, I resigned from the university on a, trumped, a matter of trumped-up principle. I needed another geographic, and I was going to resign and going to write a book to expose American psychiatry, the truth of American psychiatry. <coughs> might have been a very brief book, <coughs> but there I was going to do it, so I, I needed to resign to disencumber myself of all institutional affiliations and to be free as an artist to write. Well, I resigned. I had to invent a reason to resign, and the strange thing was that nobody tried to prevent me. I gave up tenure at UCLA in 1977, 1976, and of course I couldn't write. I took out $12,700 in a retirement fund, and I drank that up in less than four months. And on March 6, 1977, unable to write, by this time sick, with liver damage, high blood pressure, a diagnosis of diabetes, uh, <clears throat> given to me, chronic colitis, my wife by now wisely left, my children sequestered in a boarding school out on uh, Catalina Island, safely away, learning how to do drugs. And I was alone in the house with a, <laughs> with a blind Welsh terrier. And, uh, and eventually uh, a series of events occurred that made it no longer possible for me uh, to, to avoid the fact that I was alcoholic. Uh, actually, after I left, um, show you the arrogance, after I left UCLA, I, I, I went in, I was, of course, didn't have a license to practice because I had one in Maryland but I didn't get one when I came out here because I was working at UCLA and the VA, and so I didn't need a license. But I, was a <clears throat> I set up a practice without a license. And uh, I thought I was an examiner in the national boards for psychiatry and neurology, and I thought, well, I mean, I'm federally sort of licensed, you know. I mean, I examine people for a federal specialty. So therefore, and I have a license in Maryland, though the power of those two authorities should confer enough authority on me to practice in California. I just didn't want to do the exam like everybody else because uh, I was afraid of failing it. So I set up this imaginary practice in Westwood, in the office of, a borrowed office of an Israeli real estate broker. That's where my office was. <laughs> and it was just one story under Monty's bar. And so, and the patients didn't stay very long because the first thing I would tell them was that I had no authority to see them, uh, but that our com my competence would carry us through. So the average length of my psychiatric hours was about five minutes because they got out of this place fast. Uh, and I would just go up and drink. And it was fine with me that they left. And I would just go up and drink. After all, I had this $12,700. And I had the back wall of the office plastered with degrees and and citations of all kinds, 23 of them, because um, I had none of my own. I had no self-esteem. It was all external. In any event, I then I got sober by getting involved in a seminar. I was given a chance, really, to the great opportunity of my professional career was to go and be a consultant for 
big group of businessmen in Texas, was getting paid 1500 bucks a day for this, and it was four days of a communication seminar that I was supposed to give them, just 16 high-level businessmen, and this was going to change my whole career. I was going to become an organizational consultant, consulting to businesses all over the world at the top level, monarchies, governments, and even world governments. Uh, very fast. This all happened within five minutes I'd been be given this job. And I went along, I went along first class. I didn't drink. They sent a limousine for me at the airport with a bar in it. I didn't drink. For three days, I didn't drink. And I did good work. They were delighted. They were going to tell everybody about me. They wanted to retain me. On the third night, was out at the Texas Ranch, in West Texas. On the third night, um, it was a Thursday night, we were supposed to finish the seminar the next day. And um, it was a, we had a lovely dinner, just the 16 people and the staff people and the two principals and me. And everything was going wonderfully well. Uh, there was a sense of, of belonging, a sense of, of having made it, a sense of accomplishment at long last. And at 10 o'clock, I knew the dinner would stop at 11. At 10 o'clock, I thought, well... I can't do any harm between 10 and 11. I'll just have a glass of wine, and I beckon the waiter. Uh, but I'll show you what my tolerance was like by then. By a quarter to 11, I was walking up and down the dinner table, playing my harmonica and singing Irish rebel songs and knocking wine over into my client's laps, who backed off from the table, the great consultant who had done so well for three days and whom, in whom they were well pleased, got drunk. I then ran off into the Texas night with the secretary of my principal client, and which was a bad mistake because he'd been trying to run off with her for three years. And <laughs> she must have been an ACA or a co or something like that. So <clears throat> a night of combined impotence and premature, and I came back at ten past seven the next morning, uh, completely drunk, had been drinking all night, and unable to get up for the seminar, which was to begin at eight. I got up the hill to the seminar somewhere by ten past nine, hungover, shaking, and unable to continue. They paid me off, flew me back to Houston, and to this day, I have never sent them their report. Uh, I was so ashamed, my, so enraged of myself, uh, but by the next week, I was in AA, because I could no longer deny the fact that it was alcohol, alcohol and nothing else, that had distorted and destroyed this opportunity. I called a friend of mine, and I went to AA looking uh, for companionship, looking for a woman, as a matter of fact. My wife, as I said, had wisely left, and they brought me to a men's stag. Uh, wise people. And I stayed in men's stag for the first four years of my sobriety. Because uh, drunken women, women talking about alcohol, made me very nervous because of my mother's uh, situation. Um, incidentally, I should have added, and I say this because I think it's important to say it. I don't say it to exhibit anything to you, uh, but when I was 13, there had been a moment when I had TB, and I was put in the garden, out in the garden to recover for nine months. And during that period of time, I was in a state of sexual frenzy at the time, at 13, and locked up in this room in a Catholic country, uh, which was with, with mortal sins all around and the threat of death. And there was my mother got into bed with me one night uh, when she was drunk. And uh, my father came into the room at the time and discovered her climbing into bed with me and trying to get into bed with me. I don't know what she meant to do. She was so drunk and hopeless and helpless at the time. But she was fondling my genitals and so on, and he took her out. And that's when I first heard the, the, the sound of bone crunching on bone as he hit her repeatedly. And he was a big man and hit her, broke her maxilla. And I went upstairs into the house where the, my sister and the maids were sitting. And I said, Daddy is... And we could hear him shouting at my mother, You whore, you harlot destroying the morals of my son and all of this roaring, bellowing that he was going on with. And they were all knitting and listening to the radio. And I said, do something about it. Daddy is killing mummy. 
knitting to listen to the radio. And to this day, I'm the only one that has any reality about that incident. The next day, she was said to have bumped into a door. She had bruises all over her. I say that because of the incest, uh, because I think there are probably many more of us who have been involved and engaged in that sort of activity than we're prepared to admit. So I say it in the hope that perhaps somebody who is sitting on it might identify. And that's under instruction to my sponsor, incidentally. Um, so I got sober, but reluctantly, this is where the... <laughs> This is where the stubbornness comes in. Because I, I, I came in and I was instant AA. I did the 12 steps in the first 24 hours and was, <laughs> was doing the ninth step still drunk. Well, I was very drunk when I came into AA. I'd gone on a three-day binge. And um, uh, I, 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 as I said, did the steps in the first 24 hours and was making transatlantic phone calls and amends to Ireland uh, the night after I came into AA. Uh, I was a psychiatrist. I was sort of set up as an object in AA and people regarded me as a sort of commodity, a bit of a freak. There weren't too many doctors in AA or psychiatrists, particularly in Los Angeles at the time, and I was brought around. And my ego was very much uh, 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 massaged. And I thought this was great. I'd finally found my home. I could give lectures to people and talk, and people listened, and they clapped. And I found enormous acceptance in this place. And I felt absolutely thrilled at uh, what I'd found. Uh, and I did. I stayed dry. I never looked at the 12 steps again after the first 24 hours. Uh, I was soon speaking and lying my way through pitches. And uh, I remember the first pitch I gave. Uh, by the time 10 o'clock had arrived, I was still at age only three. I was having that boil lanced at that 10 o'clock after an hour's pitch. And I remember turning to the audience and asking them for an extension. Imagine an AA pitcher asking for an extension of time. And I went on for another half hour. Because uh, I was so full of myself. I had nothing to offer except, in a sense, myself, and there was nothing to me except myself. I was a narcissistic exhibition. I couldn't find a sponsor. I interviewed a number of sponsors. Uh, <laughs> I really did. I used to go and I'd, I'd look for them, and uh, I used to look around for them, but none of them were suitable. None of them were suitable. Uh, they were too old, too young, too extreme. They hadn't had enough experience. They'd had too much experience. They didn't have enough intelligence. They weren't witty enough. They said something about four meetings ago that I hadn't agreed with. They had halitosis uh, or something of that sort, or they had the wrong job. Anyway, I couldn't find anyone uh, to fit my needs, and so I sponsored myself on the basis from psychiatry that who had analyzed Sigmund Freud? Well, it was Sigmund Freud. Analyzed Sigmund Freud. Somebody had to start it. So I got the idea, well, in this instance here, I'm a psychiatrist in AA, and probably, I, I mean, I've had two, two psychoanalysis. These people wouldn't be able to understand me. I mean, even the words I used, most of them don't know. They're not very educated either, seems to me. Uh, you know, they, they haven't had my education, certainly. And so, well, I'll do it myself. And I really did. I sponsored myself and uh, had interviews with myself and so on. And uh, that went on for three or four years. I stayed around in AA, uh, and I've only, about the last three years, admitted this, because it, it seems to me still so outrageous. Um, I was there sitting in AA looking. How is this going to help me? What am I going to get out of this? How can I make this into something that's going to help me? I mean, nothing to do with sobriety, my career, fame, all of this kind of thing. It suddenly struck me that Bill Wilson was dead. There's a vacancy at the top. I thought I saw a lot that was wrong with AA. 
I could help it. There was a lot of trouble about addicts and alcoholics. I sort of had some sort of solution for that. AA really needed to be taken again like he had taken it in the beginning and brought to its full flower of its destiny. And I really felt that maybe I was the person that, that God had sent me into AA to bring it out of its difficulties, out of the desert, and into the sunlight again. Oh boy, did I glow with the warmth of that. And I really believed it. And I had to figure out then how I was going to get there. How do you, how do you get to the top in AA? Because I, then it was complicated. I couldn't find the top. And how do you get to the top when you can't find it? And, uh, it, and nobody actually seemed to want to have me do anything. You know, they didn't seem to want me to accept clean coffee cups and pick up cigarette butts and things like that. They certainly didn't want me to be secretary of a meeting, although I did. And the only way I could be secretary of a meeting was to start a meeting. And I actually did start one, and, and in my about third or fourth year of sobriety, and, and became secretary of it. <laughs> but here I was with this incredible ambition, secret, darkest secret I've ever had, looking and scheming and wondering how I could get there to New York, reading biographies, analyzing the twelve traditions to see how I could penetrate and use them and climb the ladder of success in AA. But it kept me coming back. I mean, that kind of job opportunity is... Uh, <clears throat> An important one to consider. And so I kept on coming back. I kept on coming back because I didn't know what else to do. I became a handmaiden for my wife. I carried her bags. I gave up medicine completely. And uh, sort of became a sort of half-assed actor. And uh, uh, she is an actress, and I was able to help her in her career a little bit. Uh, but I had no goals and no objectives other than to reach the top in AA and finally perhaps take the Laster Award and maybe the Nobel Prize. I clearly wasn't going to get the Nobel Prize in medicine as I'd hoped to in earlier years. Uh, and now maybe AA, I mean, they'd offered it to Wilson before and he turned it down for the Lasker Award and, and I could change things around and make AA into an organization with me at the head of it where I could, in fact, ex- receive the Lasker Award and the Nobel Prize. Um, it's incredible, isn't it? And this was all in sobriety. And, <laughs> And then a series of events occurred, and the violence continued at home. So nothing much changed, except that I was full of myself, and people said, what a great thing, and isn't it wonderful, and so on. Uh, then then a good thing happened. I got cancer. That was a very good thing for me. I got anorectal carcinoma in 1980, and I had extensive surgery and all of that. And it was just a... I used to say that and not qualify it, you know, and people say, oh, my God, you had cancer. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was a, a cancer of a sort of moderate malignancy, you know. It was just the right kind of cancer to have because it really wasn't going to kill me, you know. But I've milked that cancer over the years marvelously just to say I had cancer, you know. They look at you, oh, what a man, you know. Well, I, as I say, I only had a moderate cancer, but it was it was moderate enough to scare the sh... Uh, the, well, uh, to, to, to make me come into the program at last. Uh, and I did. I made a few more steps into the program then, but not giving up my individuality, not giving up anything, and this is where the stubbornness came in. I wouldn't give up my position. I wanted sobriety, and I wanted the freedom of doing what I wanted to do, and to control you, and to do what I wanted, and to go where I wanted. I wanted all that simultaneously, and yet I wanted what you had. And I couldn't accept the fact that the way to get what you had was to behave like you, to get into action in the way that you had, and that then I could have what you had, but not until then. And that remains the problem until this day, but it's getting an awful lot better. Cancer helped me a lot because I then did get a license 
I went out and got a medical license and I went into practice. And I thought for the first time in my life I should learn something rather than teach it. And my first exercise in humility was to learn how to treat alcoholics. And I got a job in a hospital, in an inpatient service, and I learned, and I learned, and I learned, and then I started an outpatient service. And that's what I do today. I treat alcoholics as best I can, and I do things in this field. Um, uh, It was about four or five years ago after that, I became again, my sobriety goes by, goes along, and then I have a major crisis, whether cancer or some other event of this kind, an illness, uh, another attack of suicide, Something like that occurs, and I go from one crisis to another, but somehow the sobriety, I'm forced, I do nothing unless I'm forced to do it, deepens with each one of these events. Now, four years ago, I was in Ireland working on a film with my wife, and I I remember being, again, yet suicidal because I felt that I was no person of my own. I had given up my own identity to her, and I was, again, her handmaiden by my own volition, and I had no identity of my own. Actually, this was before I came back and got a... uh, uh, it was before I came back and started my own clinics. I remember in an alcoholic, hysterical way, I remember the place I was sitting, wondering and feeling as despairing as I ever have in my life, uh, should I commit suicide? And then a very important consideration came in. No, I think I should eat dinner first. <laughs> should I commit suicide before or after dinner? And that's where my priorities were. Of course, this is all adult children stuff. Having grown up in an, adult, in an alcoholic family, I have no idea which ever should come first. So like a schizophrenic, I am presented all the time with a range of priorities, uh, all equal, and having therefore to decide between a whole series of equal possibilities, uh, which makes life quite difficult. Um, Then I I finally did a fourth step, and uh, I would do my fourth step, and I would bring it to a temporary sponsor, temporary one. Didn't define anything in the big book except another human being. And uh, I would bring it, but I couldn't do it because I kept on losing my fourth step. I'd leave it, I'd stop off for coffee on the way to deliver my fourth step to another human being. And I would get there and I'd leave my fourth step in the coffee shop. Then I'd have to go and do it all again. I finally did it, and that was, as was said this morning, that was the difference. Doing the fourth and fifth step finally got me into recovery and into the program and into Alcoholics Anonymous and into some kind of relationship with myself. Uh, It's been a a difficult uh, road, one one of the, but a wonderful one. Uh, because gradually, as time goes on, I'm beginning to feel uh, something of what uh, it is, must be like to be a person. And certainly going back to the original instructions of being a man, I do feel now more like what it must be to feel like a man. I mean, when I was there first, I remember going to medical school, uh, I used to think that being a man was to sweat. I was, like, I was constructed anatomically like some kind of a canine. I don't seem to have any sweat glands very much. And as a result, when I was so young, everybody else, all you people sweated. And I used to envy people who sweated under their arms, uh, because that meant they were, that was a man. And I remember there was an American guy at at medical school, and he used to wear gray t-shirts, and he used to sweat along his back. Oh God, I thought, oh my God, that is really big, and I need a crew cut. And I used to go, and I'd I'd be trying to inspect my armpits to see if there any sweat, and I'd, I'd go looking to see if I had any pubic hair, and I hadn't, and I would try to massage my face with sandpaper to make myself shave and deepen my voice so as I could be a man. And it's taken all these years of drinking and all these years of recovery, not so many years now, almost ten, to even begin to find out what it's like to be a person and to be a man. And one of the very interesting things I've discovered is there is not these days so much, it seems to me, a stigma against drinking and using drugs. 
Now, people know what to do with drunks. You step over them or you avoid them or you report them to the police or you leave them or you hit them or whatever you do with them. You go to Al-Anon, you, you release them. There are all sorts of techniques. But people don't know what to do with us recovering people. There is a stigma against recovery. And I discovered that uh, <coughs> in my colleagues at the medical school, most of whom don't believe I was an alcoholic. They don't know what alcoholism is. Nobody ever taught them. So how should they know? But they're embarrassed by my alcoholism. When I say at a committee meeting or something like that, I introduce my disease and have to talk about it. They all, their beepers start to, to go. <laughs> you know, self-induced beeperism, you know, that sort of... And a chorus of beepers like bullfrogs. And, <clears throat> and suddenly the room is empty. Because they're embarrassed to have a faculty member who is just an ordinary old chronic drunk. Used to be. Not any longer. But they don't understand recovery because they think that AA, with their sophistication and brilliance, that AA is probably a, a fanatical group of cultists, you know, or something of that sort. Uh, and they don't know quite what to do. Uh, similarly, when I went, went back to Ireland, uh, in my family, it was quite all right when I was drinking myself to death. And uh, my sister, who's a pediatrician, when I'd go home, would always give me a, uh, some whiskey to, to go home with in the car, from her house to our family house, make sure I had a drink. And that's common in Ireland. Um, and I was clearly drinking myself to death. It was clear to me, and probably subliminally clear to everybody else. But Ireland is the only country, again, in the world, I think, where to drink for a man to drink himself to death is regarded as a noble pursuit. <laughs> to go under despite the adversity and the struggle, and to go under in the struggle with drink is regarded as a hero's death, and a very dangerous place to live for a man. And so they used to be giving me drink and all of that, and then I went back sober. And I remember saying to them that uh, I was in AA. And they hissed, and they turned around, and they turned on the television, because they were embarrassed. I had finally brought scandal on the family <laughs> by being a member of AA. And then six years ago, another brother of mine in New Orleans, who was drinking himself to death, also <clears throat> uh, came into Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I'm sure in part, because <clears throat> of my being a member of AA, and they regard me as having had a bad influence on him. <laughs> And yet, he was clearly coming towards the end of a disastrous alcoholic career. He's got six and a half years of sobriety now. There's another brother, age 40, who is dying from liver damage, um, by, demonstrated by biopsy. And uh, nobody thinks that he's alcoholic except me. And I'm regarded as being uh, hysterical. I'm always making mountains out of molehills. In fact, my recommendations to him or my attempts to 12-step him are regarded as invasions of his privacy and being entirely and completely inappropriate and are uh, obstructed by my sister uh, who tells him that he should just stop drinking whiskey and go on to wine. This is in an alcoholic family. This is in a family uh, where anybody who drinks becomes alcoholic. In a family where my mother died of alcoholism, my father died of the secondary effects of alcoholism, and uncles and aunts on both sides streaming out from our family like a comet tail through history have all been alcoholic and died from alcoholism. And this denial still exists in our family. So our family, as a result, is a lonely place to be. So I've had to try and now construct for myself, really, and for others, another family. And I have two sons. My wife, having gone through Al-Anon, is now... Uh, three years herself uh, in recovery in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My two sons, one will have six months on the 22nd of uh, this month of August, and another one will have 96 days tomorrow. And so <clears throat> in sight is this family. Those children are almost as old as I am. That's the only problem. But in, in sight is the family that I always wanted. Communications are growing. Affection is possible. Intimacy is in the wings. 
Uh, for many, many years, I didn't know what a feeling was. I didn't know how I felt. If anybody asked me how I felt, I simply didn't know. I would make up a story. It's very difficult to be a psychiatrist and not know what a feeling is. It gives you a sense of fraudulence when you're in practice. Um, to not actually have any experience of a feeling and yet to be engaged in a profession with deals with feelings. And that's all beginning to happen to me now. I think I can identify feelings that I'm having. I think I can know when I'm angry or when I'm sad or when I'm warm or where I'm whatever it may be. And I think then I can act sometimes appropriately. I still have very many of the character defects and for any newcomers that might be, don't give them up too soon. Character defects keep people coming back. They keep people coming back to this program. I am still regard myself just talking to somebody out in the corridor this morning. Uh, with each year <coughs> of sobriety, it seems to me uh, that I am allowed to see how really sick and disturbed a person I am. If I had been allowed to see in my first year or two or even four years of sobriety the extent of my disturbance, I'm sure that my only alternative would have been to drink. I would have had to drink because of I would have been so appalled at what I saw. And so now I have the program and the structure and the fellowship of AA that I use often ineptly, but to the best of my ability, and it certainly seems to work for me. The more I use it, uh, <clears throat> in a sense, the stronger I get and the more I am able to tolerate the extent of my own disturbance as a human being. There was an event last week that I want to tell you about because I think I owe my life again, just not in any abstract sense, to this program. One of the things I did <clears throat> while in recovery was to take up flying about six years ago. And I did, and I have a plane, and I, I'm a pilot, and uh, I got the plane painted uh, about a month ago, and uh, last week I was seeing my son in Santa Monica Airport, and I brought the plane back from the paint shop <clears throat> about a month ago, and I'd flown it around for five or six hours, and had a lovely cup of coffee with my son, a tender, warm moment, and he went off, and I was taking off from Santa Monica Airport to go back to Van Nuys, and uh, I noticed a, a little plane ahead of me, a uh, little Cherokee, and I remember saying to myself, gee, I didn't know Cherokees climbed so well. This plane was taking off like a, a rocket up in front of me. And I suddenly realized that my appreciation of its climbing was because I was going down. <laughs> At which point the tower told me that I was trailing smoke. 70884, you're trailing smoke, they said. And I said, oh, shit. And I looked for a landing place. I was headed for the sea or the beach. No good there because there were houses in between. And I'd often wondered what I would do. All pilots do, I think, wonder what we would do under those circumstances. And I had always been secretly afraid that I would panic. In fact, I always knew I would panic. Well, I didn't. I said a little prayer. I couldn't have time for the whole serenity prayer, so I sort of compressed it. <laughs> there were things to do. And furthermore, I didn't declare an emergency. And do you know why I didn't imagine this out? Because I didn't want to fill out the paperwork. So I said to the Italian, this is an emergency situation, but I'm not declaring it. I'd like to return to the airport. Do you want runway three, they said. And I, anyway, I turned around. And it's a very dangerous time when you're, I could only get 60 miles an hour out of the aircraft. Uh, the, the, the engine was all failing and uh, the instruments were fine. I couldn't work out what was going on. There was just no power. And uh, we were going down. I was on my own. Could only get 60 miles an hour out of the plane, but managed to turn around. And that's a dangerous time because you can easily spin in if you're flying very slowly. And, and low, I was only at 300 feet. So I came around anyway and landed back in the airport, and I was terrified. I was so scared. But I wasn't panicked. 
And what we found, actually, took the airplane to bits right there on the runway, was a big sanding disc had been left by the paint shop in the air intake and a razor blade. And on takeoff, that had broken loose and sucked up into the carburetor and had cut off all fuels, all air supply to the carburetor so that the engine had only fuel. Uh, so I was exhilarated after this, and, and this was a very important event for me uh, to know, and I'm quite convinced that it was the program and the discipline and the structure and the seriousness with which I fly and take my training. I take my flying very seriously. It was the seriousness of that which was induced by my uh, membership in AA and my adherence to the program that actually in this event saved my life. So for that alone, I'm very grateful. I'm not sure that you may be grateful because I had then was preserved to come down and talk to you and to me today. Uh, but in any event, maybe God had some design in that. And another event happened. I was so nervous uh, this morning <coughs> about this particular talk that for the fir first time in my sobriety in nine and a half years, I went down on my knees upstairs in the room. Some sort of surrender took place, but the trouble is when I get down on my knees, having been a fanatical Catholic, you know, in the early days of my life and everything, I got down on my knees and I went down, I didn't know what to do. I don't know how to pray. But at least I got down on my knees. So that's a start. So that's giving up something. So I'm grateful to you for that. It was the enormity of this crowd that I saw yesterday that forced me <coughs> to my knees this morning. I thank you for that.